1: Hello friends and welcome. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and this week's pod table. It's about 8 45 a.m. on Friday, July 26. Time to look back at the big stories dominating this week from Robert Mueller's testimony to a great big bipartisan budget deal to a big deal between California and four leading automakers. We look back this week on the podcast with three reporters in the heart of the action here in Washington, D.C., Jordan Fabian, on the job at the White House every day for the hill thehill.com. Hello Jordan. Hello Bill. Good to see you. you too. Jennifer Habercorn, she's got Congress covered every day for the Los Angeles Times, uh, LAtimes.com. Hi Jennifer. Hey Bill. And here with the new from the New York Times, running fast to keep up with all the candidates in the Democratic primaries uh, 2020 for president. Reed Epstein. Hello Reed.
2: Hello, oh, good
1: morning friends. New com. Thank you all for being with us. So it was um It was like the second coming uh, this week, Uh, everybody uh, in anticipation of the testimony of Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Uh, Chairman Jerry Nadler started it off and maybe got uh, the best soundbite or the best answer out of the day of Robert Mueller. Here in his opening questions, here's how it all began.
3: Director Mueller, the president has repeatedly claimed that your report found there was no obstruction and that it completely and totally exonerated him. But that is not what your report said, is it? Correct. That is not what the report said. And now reading from page two of volume two of your report, that's on the screen, you wrote, quote, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, however, we are unable to reach that judgment, close quote. Now, does that say there was no obstruction? No. And what about total exoneration? Did you actually totally exonerate the president? No. Now, in fact, your report expressly states that it does not exonerate the president. It does. And your investigation actually found, quote, multiple acts by the president that were capable of exerting undue influence over law enforcement investigations, including the Russian interference and obstruction investigations. Is that correct?
4: Correct.
1: So uh, that was just about the most important questions anybody was going to ask Reed. He got the answers he wanted, but did Mueller move the needle?
2: No, um, <laughs> but I don't know that there was much expectation outside of the sort of rosiest, colored, rose-colored glasses that there was going to be any sort of movement on Mueller, uh, movement after Mueller testified, and it's sort of the latest chapter in... Sort of the grand sort of drama of the Trump administration of oh will this be this thing that changes minds, and in fact nothing is changing minds. People's minds have been made up about the president since before he was elected, certainly, and uh, you know the polling has been remarkably static from day one of his administration. Uh, with you know there's a handful of a couple of exceptions that prove the rule, like Justin Amash um, mm-hmm. types, um, but for the most part. People know what they think about Trump. They've decided about Trump. They're either with him or they're not. And uh, events like Mueller testifying uh, are sort of big media uh, you know, extravaganzas but don't have a whole lot of impact on what normal people across the country think of
1: this. Uh, so, Jordan, the president, ahead of time saying he didn't think he'd watch very much of it. He ended up watching a lot of it, didn't he?
5: And what was the White House reaction? Yeah, when the moment he said that he wasn't going to watch and I, I'm not sure anyone believed that but uh he he did end up watching a lot as he admitted to Sean Hannity on Thursday night's program and uh the White House was quite pleased with how this went. They uh like Reid was saying there wasn't this bombshell moment that came out that really moved the needle far on uh, impeachment and then I think that the White House believes that you know Democrats kind of made fools of themselves that this was uh something that they had built up into something that was perhaps going to move the needle and and it didn't and and therefore it was a failure um look I, I i i'm not sure how much bearing one way or another this is going to have on the 2020 election but um I, at least in in the short term in this week uh they're they're viewing it as a win
1: right and on the hill jennifer um a lot of people were i think hoping secretly maybe not so privately that this would kickstart the impeachment process right after this testimony they all the democrats would be rushing on board did you see any movement there
0: very little i mean there were a handful of democrats who this week came out and said we want to start an impeachment inquiry um but we really didn't see the huge numbers that supporters were hoping for i think jared huffman a democrat from california put it best he said the Mueller report was a blockbuster but the testimony was a dud and um You know, impeachment supporters feel like um, if anything was going to move the needle, it was Robert Mueller, but he did his best to make sure that that wasn't the case.
1: Right. I saw that Lawrence Tribe also said that rather than uh, kind of pump new life into the Mueller report, that Mueller sucked all the air out of it, basically. I mean, let's talk about that for a little bit. What was wrong with Mueller? I mean, or is that who he is?
5: Look, I think that there was... uh, it was kind of he clear stumbled, that he stumbled, he mumbled, yeah, he couldn't find his well, way. First of all, I, I think that you know that you heard some people in, in the Trump orbit try to use this to paint him as sort of mentally feeble. You know, Kelly Conway, I think, said that word on the driveway yeah. this week. But I, I think the bigger story is that Robert Mueller really didn't want to be there. He didn't want to testify. He was a reluctant witness, and he didn't want to read these portions of the report out loud to really give Democrats the sound bites they wanted. And the question is, did Democrats mm. know that going in, and if so, um, you know why did they go ahead with the format that they did? But well,
0: even- Democrats just found out um, a couple of days before the testimony that Mueller refused to read the report. You saw that a couple times. Um, he kind of mm. joked, well, I'm not going to read the report to you. You can read it to me. Um, and that was one of the things that they were hoping for, is that they could at least say, "Will you read page 74, line but- two to me. And they didn't even get that
1: no he, each time he said i prefer that if mm. you read it, but read th- some of the people who used to work with Robert Mueller said you know at, at a time he was much more you know much stronger and uh, articulate and a bigger presence and would have really dominate almost like a James Comey type, which we certainly didn't see
2: well I mean, I think Jordan is right. I mean what we saw was somebody who was very reluctant to mm. part- be participating in sort of any of this uh any of the circus um you know, as we saw, he had delayed this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, you know, he's done precisely two public appearances since the report came out, uh, the testimony and his statement a few weeks ago. Um, and so he's clearly not someone who wants to be in the middle of a political circus, let alone a presidential campaign or an impeachment, uh, drama. And so, uh, you know, I don't. Kn- we don't really have a lot of a baseline of what Robert Mueller typically looks like in these settings, <laughs> right? He's <hasn't laughs> yeah. been in one and forever, yeah. Um, so I don't know that it's fair to say like what happened to him or why did he look so bad or because we don't know what he normally looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, but it wasn't, you know, a sort of Mr. Smith goes to Washington like storming in and and taking the Capitol uh, by storm. Uh, you know, it was somebody who. Who didn't want to be there and so if you if they stuck you there for seven hours talking about something you didn't want to talk about to people you didn't want to talk to you might look a little bit similar <laughs> <laughs> so um today
1: uh this is july 26 the congress gets out of town they'll be gone for 46 days um back to the impeachment question jennifer um Right after the Mueller hearing, I spoke with Congresswoman Maxine Waters, chair of the House Financial Services Committee, I believe the first member, Democratic member, to, uh, rec- to uh, demand the impeachment of President Trump. And I asked her whether the clock might be running out on impeachment.
6: yes. If
1: the clock is running out.
6: I believe the clock is running on us, and I think that it's taken us too long. Uh, if they had started where I had started, <laughs> we'd be over with them practically by now. But I, I think uh, the assessment that uh, getting into an election year doesn't work, and I, I basically believe that also.
1: So we've got from Labor Day maybe another month or so after Labor Day.
6: I think we're getting dangerously close to the time when it's uh, too late.
1: Jennifer? Jennifer?
0: Yeah, that's certainly what I've heard from the House Democrats as well, who support impeachment. Um, They felt like the August recess was either going to give them momentum, if Mueller had provided some, at least some compelling sound bites, they would be going into the August recess with at least the possibility that they'd be hearing at their town halls, we need to do impeachment and maybe move some of those um, uh, hesitant Democrats in in their direction. Um, But I think the August recess is really going to put a damper on it. Um, I think the 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 Democrat the Democratic voters who want impeachment are going to go to their members' town halls. That member is probably going to already support impeachment, and they're going to see a lot of um, a lot of heat, a lot of uh, focus on it. But for the Democrats who are in districts where impeachment isn't really popular, those members probably don't support impeachment. And so I think I think what the August recess is going to do is kind of put a put a damper on things. And they're going to come back in September for just a couple weeks, and that's not enough time to you know, get to nearly 200 Democratic members who want impeachment, let alone convince Nancy Pelosi that this is a smart idea. So it
1: it was, Jordan, a win for
5: Nancy Pelosi, because this is what she has wanted, right, to get to the August recess. (laughs) Yeah, for a long time now. I mean, she's, uh, it seems like she's using these investigations that are going on in the House and in other matters to say, well, uh, to sort of put off impeachment. And this, uh, I think, like Jen said, it puts it off even further. There wasn't that that galvanizing moment behind impeachment. And I think what it gives is Democrats is, you know, an opportunity maybe to move on from this and, and try to craft a message and a policy agenda that they can use to go up against President Trump in the 2020 election. And of course, that's going to be the, you know, job number one for the Democratic candidates themselves. But, uh, you know, I think we yet, the Democratic Party has kind of been divided between, you know, those kind of focused on impeachment and those, you know, f- saying we need to move on, and and, and maybe this pushes it in in, in that direction. But uh, I I still think if, if you yeah, Maxine Water, judging by what she said, uh, they're still pretty dug in. If Max yeah. yeah, but if she says that it's the
1: clock is just about run out, I think that that's that's, that's a, that kind of closes the door on that. Right. But I, I'm I'm curious, Reed, what kind of support are the pro impeachment Democrats in the House getting from the 2020 candidates on the road? I mean, not much. Um, there's nobody out there really charging on
2: it, is And there? I think, I mean, from my experience, I know I did my first 2020 reporting trip uh, the week after Thanksgiving last year. Uh, <laughs> I haven't heard... Early oh, early start, dude. Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard many... It's not the first thing that comes to mind when you ask uh, people who are showing up at political events in Iowa and New Hampshire what is important to them. Um they say we have to get rid of the president. We have to get rid of Trump. Um, and I care about, you know, healthcare, the environment, uh, education, and something else. You know, the the, the the sort of Washington dramas, whether it's Russia or Mueller or whatever else is going on and dominating cable news and people, you know, within you know four miles of where we sit, uh, just doesn't have a whole lot of. Relevance to people's lives in Cedar Rapids, in Manchester, and mm-hmm. uh, Des Moines—it's—it's it's not at it's the front of their minds. It's they are aware of it, uh, they have an opinion on it if you ask them, but it is not something that comes up to people. And so the candidates are reacting to that. You know, the candidates talk about and address issues that these people who they see all in in these campaign settings bring to them as important to them. And so that's why you hear them talking much more. Uh, about college tuition, about health care, about climate, um, because those, frankly, are the issues that are most important to people who are engaged enough to be showing up at events in places eight months before the caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. It's not Russia or Mueller or impeaching Trump because they all sort of understand that Trump that there'll be a referendum on Trump uh, a year and a half from now anyway yeah. and that their energy – is better the candidates all sort of are of a piece that their energy is better served towards uh, engaging those voters and removing Trump through the electoral process as opposed to impeachment. Now, yeah. uh, right. some of them, like Elizabeth Warren, notably, have come out for impeachment, um, but you don't hear her talk about it. Uh, it's you know
1: that's not the number one thing she talks about at the at at her rallies. One one side effect of the Mueller testimony this week was. Um, it kind of put the squad on the back burner. You know, Suddenly, uh, every newscast was not led by the president's latest tweets about about the squad. Um, but um, Bill Weld, who is, let's remember, <laughs> a Republican 2020 candidate in the Republican primary against President Trump, no matter how serious he is out there, and he spoke to the NAACP convention this week, and here was his take on the president's tweets about the squad.
4: Let's get one thing out of the way right at the beginning. Donald Trump is a raging racist, okay? He's a complete and thoroughgoing racist. And he made that choice as a choice a long time ago when he was engaged in the housing business in New York with his father. And he famously said, we have ways of keeping people like them out of our projects. Now the Republican Party in Washington, the National Republican Party, has a choice. And a lot of them like to think that it's a political choice. But it's not a political choice, it's a moral choice. And unless the Republican Party in Washington expressly, expressly rejects the racism of Donald Trump, they're gonna come to be universally viewed as the party of racism in America.
1: Pretty strong statement. And without getting into the whole question of whether he is or he isn't, Jordan, there are voices at the White House who have urged the president to back off the tweets on the
5: squad, right? But he's unlikely to? Yeah, I mean, look, look, he— his response to the, the send the back chant at that North Carolina rally it was very close to what he his reaction to the Charlottesville uh, the death in Charlottesville at, at the at the white nationalist rally. So basically, he, he initially repudiated uh, what happened on the advice of his advisors, and then thought about it for a bit, and then doubled down. Um, and and this is the path he's chosen. He Said they were real patriots. Yes, exactly. So and and, and this is the path. That he's chosen, and and there's he's not backing off of it, and there are no elected Republicans in Washington who are, I mean, they were certainly concerned about that chant, but there's no one really out there telling him to you know stop right now or you know for the sake of the party. So um, this is what it is, and and these are the battle lines that that are being drawn for 2020. Right, uh, I mean,
2: it's not like this is out of character or a surprise to anyone who has been paying attention the last you know four years. It, this is who president is this is how he operates this is how his supporters operate and so the pearl clutching that went on after that struck me as a little over the top from people who sort of have lulled themselves into forgetting sort of what the trump trump and trumpism is about
5: yeah and and it's interesting because i think at least from the uh, House Republican perspective, there's certainly members who are worried, especially members who are in more swing districts about this this phenomenon and the chance and what that meant for their reelection. But again, they've they made their bed, like Reed was saying, with Trump in 2016. and if they were you know perhaps papering over some of those problems they had with trump, um you know that's that's their problem to deal with at this point.
1: And looking at the Republican leadership, Jennifer to as you, as you jump in, right? I mean, Kevin McCarthy basically said he wasn't targeting anybody in particular. And then Mitch McConnell says, I think he's onto something. I <laughs> mean, that's, that's as strong as you got. Right. the Republican leadership.
0: And I think we're going to see, you know, we saw... McCarthy originally he told reporters not on camera that he didn't agree with the chant, and then when he was on camera, he said, "Oh, he wasn't um, he wasn't encouraging the chant. In fact, he he resumed his speech immediately so that the chant would die down. Which, you know, I think I saw a clip that showed it was 16 seconds of of, of the chant. So I'm not sure that we can say that that's a mm-hmm. accurate depiction of what happened. Um, I think you also have to think about the um, the the impact this has had on House Democrats. You know, prior to um, the president going after the squad, uh, there was a big divide between the squad and other House Democrats. And this has kind of had a unifying effect. We saw a lot of House Democrats come out and defend the squad. Um, Even it seems like Pelosi and the squad are, um, you know, a little more aligned in in their common enemy, frankly, uh, now that the president has put the squad out there.
1: Right. So we are uh, just about halfway through our time here and with uh, lots more to talk about uh, with Jordan Fabian and Reed Epstein and Jennifer Haberkorn. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. It's the Bill Press Pod, and this week's Pod Table were brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, the Great Men and Women of the AFGE under President J. David Cox. They're the men and women who keep our federal agencies running uh, day in and day out proud to get up and work for america every day not just in washington but all across a great country we thank them for their good work and for their support of the bill press pod
0: what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way
1: Well, back with our uh, pod table, Jordan Fabian, Jennifer Haberkorn, Reed Epstein. So everybody complains about Congress not getting anything done. They got something done this week, good or bad. A budget deal, a big budget deal, increases federal spending by some $320 billion, probably adds another trillion dollars to the deficit, as if anybody cares about the deficit anymore. Uh, Jennifer, a big win for Nancy Pelosi, and Jordan, a big win for Donald Trump. Huh? And then... Yeah. Read, we'll see if anybody cares. <laughs> well, Jennifer, why don't you start?
0: It was definitely a big win for Nancy Pelosi. Um, you know, she negotiated this deal essentially with Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. They were able to sideline the conservatives like Mick Mulvaney, who probably would not have signed on to this deal. Um, and Republicans, you know, for all the years of talking about fiscal conservatism, Uh, you know, just kind of said, okay, fine. You know, not many House Republicans voted for the deal on Thursday.
1: A lot of Republicans voted against it.
0: Right. It was about two to one against. Um, But it underscored the strength of Nancy Pelosi in two ways. One, she got 218 Democrats to vote for this thing. So this could have passed if no Republican had supported it. Um, She marshaled her members. um, You know, Democrats were not excited about this, but you know, they said, "Let's get the debt ceiling out of the way." We're taking away a, a political cudgel that Republicans could use in the future, um, and it showed. You know, Pelosi wanted to send a message that this was a pretty good deal for Democrats, and she was able to do that.
1: And Jordan Donald Trump complained, I, I mean,
5: bragged rather once about being the king of debt. I guess now he really is, huh? Yeah, I mean, it, like uh, you know, Jennifer was saying this, uh, you know, this era of. Uh, austerity and, and fiscal <laughs> discipline is all of a sudden over. I mean, it's just, uh, it's amazing. As you know, somebody who covered that, uh, the fiscal cliff fight and, uh, you know, like several years ago, it's, it's a completely new era. But, uh, you know, the calculus at the White House and specifically for President Trump is that he did not want to go through one of these damaging budget fights leading up to his reelection campaign. Uh, he, he saw the political fallout and his advisors saw the political fallout from the shutdown earlier this year over the border wall. His, his approval ratings took a major hit uh, mm, during that yeah. fight, so um, that was certainly on their weighing on on the president's mind and on some of his team's mind heading into these talks. Right. So it was uh,
2: good for the Democrats, good for the Republicans, good for the country. Reed, we'll, we'll find out, right? Um, you know, it's it's probably better for the country if there's not a government shutdown um, and if there's not a huge fight. Um, you know, we'll see, right? I mean, I think these big spend. But- Big spending deals uh, tend to reveal hypocrisies on many and many camps. Uh, you know, we all, like Jordan said, we all lived through Republicans uh, beating their chests and you know putting themselves in front of the doors to block spending during the Obama era. That uh, many of them have now are now supporting when Trump is president. Uh, I forget who someone I have read this on in some a story somewhere that. The deficits have increased under the last three Republican presidents and decreased under the last two Democratic presidents. Um, It does seem that when a Democrat is in office, the Republicans get uh, up in arms about government spending uh, and the deficits, which sort of forces the Democrats to deal with it in a way that Republicans don't when they're in control.
1: Um, Just uh, for a sideline, I I ran into former Democratic Senator Byron Dorgan uh, from North Dakota last night Uh, and uh, I said, so Byron, I got the budget deal done. And he said, yeah, it's a total piece of shit. (laughs) Uh, And he was saying, you know, I remember when all of us used to say we have to be fiscally conservative, we have to worry about the deficit, we have to worry about the debt. No voices, neither Democratic or Republican voices are are left who will make that argument.
0: And I think one reason for that is that the debt ceiling has become so politically contentious that they didn't want to have to deal with, neither party wanted to deal with the, the fallout of either getting close to a debt ceiling, actually collapsing. Um, I mean, Mitch McConnell said um, that this avoids chaos and that both parties benefit from avoiding chaos, but particularly Republicans, because they're in charge and they're supposed to be the the party that's governing right now. It is a pretty, I, I thought it was a pretty frank admission from McConnell, frankly.
5: I also saw a quote, and I'm not sure if he, he said it himself or was citing somebody else, but he said, no one's ever lost a re-election range right. by spending more. So that's... <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was his message to Trump. Yes. Yeah.
1: That is the ultimate cynical comment on Washington, <laughs> D.C., uh, I believe. Well, so if they were able to get a budget deal through, it has to pass the Senate still, doesn't it? That's right. For, and the and,
0: Senate uh, is in session for one more week, so they'll pass it next uh, week.
1: And it will. One thing that will not pass the Senate is an election security measure, which Mitch McConnell has blocked. Republicans have blocked twice in the last 24 hours. A bill which would which passed the House, a bill which would require campaigns to report to the feds any attempts by a foreign government to influence an election. That's this is less than twenty four hours after Robert Mueller said the biggest threat facing this country is Russian interference in the election. What's wrong with this bill?
0: Uh, Well, Mitch McConnell does not. Republicans in the Senate right now feel like any election security bill um, is a messaging bill for Democrats, and they don't want to give them that kind of a a messaging win. Um, I mean, it's a pretty frank contrast from Mueller's testimony. And, you know, one of the things that he was most clear on was the threat of Russia and the threat in in 2020.
1: In his opening statement and his closing statement at both hearings, he made that he made that point. Uh, It looks like just I mean, going and, and and several people have said, uh, the intelligence uh, officers have said that they're already active in 2020.
2: I mean, uh, Trump and Republicans have so uh, colored Robert Mueller in as a as almost as a Democratic operative that though he said these things in a in a public hearing uh, in front of you know, national broadcast television networks, uh, you know, for much of the country, it's it's same as a president Democratic presidential candidate saying it because that this that's what the sustained attack from Trump and his allies has done to Mueller and frankly does to anyone that Trump feels has crossed him uh, and that it that saps the credibility with a large part of the country and turns everything uh, like we've seen the last week everything from straws to uh, <laughs> you know, uh, someone who had been a uh, a decorated and person respected on both sides of the aisle, like Robert Mueller, is now a partisan food fight. Uh, There's no middle ground on almost anything anymore, uh, including the idea that uh, foreign agents are are meddling with our elections. Uh,
1: But Jordan, isn't it pretty clear that Mitch McConnell blocked this bill because Donald Trump wanted him to?
5: I, I suppose that's part of it too. I mean uh, you know maybe Trump didn't want to sign it and he said uh, hey, you know, okay <laughs> kill fine. this bill yeah. right I mean I, that, that's, I mean I, I would imagine if it passed Trump would not not have signed it because um, he you know the way he views this entire uh, issue of Russian interference is an attack on the legitimacy of his victory in 2016. So anything that questions that or undermines that, anything that suggests that he won because of Russian assistance, Uh, he's going to try to put that in the corner. Right.
1: Uh, And uh, he sees that it sort of questions the legitimacy of his presidency. He sees it that way. Definitely. Uh, A quick roundabout on uh, on 2020, Reid. You're out on the road uh, following all of these candidates. So the second big Democratic debate coming up next week. Tuesday and Wednesday night in Detroit. Tuesday and Wednesday night in Detroit. We see the big five, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, what do you expect out of the second debate? Do you think uh, any of the others will be
2: able to break through? Well, for, I mean, about half or more than half of the candidates, this will be the last time they're on a national television debate. Uh-huh. Um, the, the thresholds are going to rise for the debate starting in the fall and September. Uh, only six, the big five and Beto O'Rourke are the only ones who have qualified for the September debate as of today. Uh, Cory Booker and and Amy Klobuchar will probably get there. Uh, Julian Castro and Andrew Yang might get there, and everybody else is probably not gonna get there based on where they are today. So you think we could be down to a dozen candidates maybe or, or less. less.
1: Or I mean, less. I, I
0: one debate stage?
2: One debate <laughs> stage. I mean the odds are oh. as of <laughs> as of this morning, the most candidates that will qualify for September for the September debate will be ten. Um, and it very possibly could be less than that, could be could be eight. Um now, someone could blow themselves up. You know, who knows how many of these candidates are going to turn themselves into suicide bombers in Detroit and <laughs> in an effort to you know, juice their online contributions. You know, for a yeah. lot of them, because a lot of them aren't even close to 130,000 donors that they need to qualify for, this, for the full debates, let alone uh, up in the polling thresholds. And they all saw what happened with Kamala Harris and Julian Castro in the first debate, where they had big moments going on the attack against somebody else, and that turn Castro double raised had 60,000 donors in the mm-hmm. month after that debate when he'd had 70,000 in the six months before it. Uh, Harris raised $4 million in the week after that debate. And so the incentives are in place. Uh, and so everybody on that stage outside of the big five, and including the big five, right, Harris has been going after Biden, is going to be looking to their left
5: and their right and looking sure. for somebody else to blow up.
1: Yeah. Uh, it seems that Joe Biden needs a good night, Jordan. Wouldn't you agree?
5: Yeah, I, I think he needs to be uh, much more assertive and uh, and perhaps take some shots at someone like Kamala Harris and uh, and put a more forceful defense not only of himself but also a, f- a forceful case of why he should be president. Now, you know, he's sort of run so far as the you know, presumed front runner kind of uh, taking a, a leisurely pace, if you will, uh, and, and not and try to stay above the fray and not engage with his opponents. But I don't, he's not going to be able to play that game in this debate, especially with the dynamic Reed mentioned. Um, you know, the I think Cory Booker has telegraphed this week that he's going to try and take a similar type of shot that Kamala Harris took at the last debate. So, uh, him and his team are going to need to be prepared for that and have some uh, effective answer. And
2: remember, Biden is going to be standing in between Booker and Harris. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so they well, well, it is
1: a, a tag team effort.
2: With
0: I'm curious, them. too. Who, who if, has
1: to break through, Jennifer? Um, cool.
0: I think um, in addition to Biden, um, I'm interested to see who the candidates kind of go after. Like, who, who the candidates view as their front runner. Like, do they go after Biden again? Or do they aim at... Kamala Harris, who had a strong night, or Cory Booker, to your point, um, I'm going to be seeing who who the candidates feel like is the front runner,
2: right? And or, and we'll also or maybe s- Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, I think we're also going to see sort of a, in a little sharper context who they don't like among the candidates on the stage, because I, I mm. think there's a real undercurrent with a lot of these candidates of dislike for uh, for Mayor Pete and for Beto O'Rourke, to um, mm. Two candidates who have come in without sort of a defined rationale policy-wise, and also kind of like just showed up on the stage five minutes ago, and for candidates like people like Amy Klobuchar, who have been elected three times, elected three times to the Senate from a non-trivial state, uh, there's a lot of resentment about how the attention and the fundraising that uh, interesting that but Pete and Beto have gotten
1: for the new kids. Um so we always love to uh wrap up our round table by uh asking each of you to is there some story this week that really caught your attention um and just just sort of uh made you stop and think maybe uh doesn't have to be political or serious um I see Jennifer going to her phone here <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to start off
0: Sure yeah. um this is a non-political story but right. um it was a good a good break um I didn't know this existed. American Airlines in the 80s had these passes. They sold for a quarter million dollars. It was a lifetime pass in first class. And it was a story on, a, narratively, the man with the golden airline ticket about one of these guys who um, bought oh. one of these passes. And then American went after him because he was using it too much.
1: <laughs> well, the, 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 rule, the rules of the game, right? So you've Yeah, paid,
0: well, you have to read the story. But I, I found it very interesting. You
1: paid $250,000 and then for life you could fly... For free in first class. I think they no longer sell those. They
0: don't. (laughs) Apparently, in the early 2000s, they tried to sell them for I think three million dollars, and no one bought them.
5: No one bought them. Jordan, I love the story this week about the fake presidential seal that President Trump spoke in front of at the Turning Point USA conference (laughs) in Washington. The seal had was modeled on the Russian coat of arms. Yes, yes. The eagle was holding twelve golf clubs. (laughs) And the motto was 45 is a puppet. I mean, that's, I mean, this White House has, has been like riddled with spelling errors and, and mistakes like that. But, uh, and I know this wasn't the White House's choice of logo, but that, that was next level. I mean, that was amazing. And
1: of all places to appear, right? Yes. It wasn't at the Democratic National right. Convention. Yes.
5: Right. And then, <laughs> so there was a story, the Washington Post actually found out who did it. Uh, who made that logo, and it was actually a disgruntled Republican, so never-Trump Republican who was a, also a graphic designer. And and his theory is that this had to be deliberate because you had to search on the Internet deep down and, and find this thing because if you search, like, presidential seal on Google Images, I did this before coming out of the show, Bill, and it's like, you know, all the normal ones. Like, how did you find this? So the, his theory is that there was a... A secret Never Trumper in the <laughs> in the there USA been. group. Yes. Just, yeah.
1: Saturday Night Live could not have done a better job. No. Yeah,
2: read. Um, well, I've been reading Dragons Love Tacos over and over again this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would say the people listening to the show are probably. I would. You should. Josh Green at Bloomberg wrote um, a cover story in Bloomberg's Business Week this week about the Elizabeth Warren campaign, that I think really gets to the heart both of what her campaign is about and broadly what the whole 2020 Democratic primary is about. Um, a real divide between candidates who the, between the candidates and voters on the question of is beating Trump enough uh, and what is the party about and is it and there's feels like there's a div- real division between people who think okay we just got to get rid of Trump and anything else is too risky and candidates who are pushing for basically to take the the country like a snow globe and shake everything up from the left the way that Trump did mm-hmm. from the right and and embark on some a new era of uh, democratic and American politics.
1: Yeah, interesting piece. Uh, my favorite story is just <laughs> is very, very quick, uh, and that is another Trump tweet, which uh, I credit Philip Bump from The Washington Post, who put this out there uh, yesterday. So the day after the Mueller testimony, less than 24 hours after uh, Bump... Um, told us that it was the third anniversary to the day three years earlier Donald Trump had tweeted out quote the new joke in town is that Russia leaked the disastrous DNC emails because Putin likes me oh wow (laughs) there it is (laughs) there's (laughs) always a tweet the narrative the narrative hasn't (laughs) changed much (laughs) right he could have tweeted it out again this year the same thing Uh, Thank you so much, guys, and I'm going to wrap up here with a uh, quick parting shot. I always uh, tell our uh, listeners and podcast followers that this parting shot um, reflects my opinions and not necessarily the opinions of our three panelists, but it's about the Mueller testimony. Let's be honest. As a star witness, Robert Mueller was a disaster. At best, his performance was shaky. He mumbled, grumbled, either couldn't hear questions or refused to answer them, and had a hard time finding his way around his own report. Some people were even worried and talking about early dementia. That's the bad news. The good news is, no matter how halting he was, Mueller also did deliver, big time. And he did so in the first five minutes when Judiciary Chairman Jerry Jerry Nadler asked him directly, quote, President Trump claims there was no obstruction of justice and your report totally exonerates him. That's not what your report shows, is it? Mueller barked right back, quote, No, that's not what the report shows. Bingo. Democrats could have ended the hearing right there. In effect, Robert Mueller called Donald Trump a liar. But Mueller didn't stop there. Under questioning by Democrats, he also detailed several times when Donald Trump, using Don McGahn, Corey Lewandowski, James Comey, or others, where Trump actually tried to obstruct justice. And in each of those cases, Mueller agreed that anybody else who did the same thing would have been charged with a crime. Donald Trump was not, we know, only because of a Justice Department policy against indicting a sitting president. So no matter how inartfully Robert Mueller did give Democrats some new ammunition, was it enough, as some Democrats hoped, to kickstart impeachment hearings? Absolutely not. After the Mueller hearings, it's now more clear than ever that Democrats cannot count on impeachment as a way of getting rid of Donald Trump. They're going to have to do it the old-fashioned way, by trouncing him at the polls on November 3rd, 2020. Uh, And that's it. That's a wrap for this edition of the uh, Bill Press Pod. You're so good to join us wherever you go for your favorite podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And before you go away, though, we want your help and ask for your help in three ways. First, subscribe to the podcast, The Bill Press Pod. Two, tell your friends to subscribe. And three, give us a five-star rating. That really helps us get the word out and grow the podcast. A special thanks to members of today's roundtable, Jordan Fabian, TheHill.com, Jennifer Haberkorn, TheLATimes.com, and Reed Epstein, NewYorkTimes.com. And thanks to all of you for joining us Stay strong, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.